This is Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucaran, giving you eternal answers to challenging questions and providing reasons for faith in Christ. Yoga. Is it okay for the Christian to practice yoga? Welcome to Evidence and Answers. I'm Kevin Harris, sitting in with Pat Zucaran. Hey, it's a great topic, Pat, and you have a special guest. Yes, uh, my guest with me today is Michael Gleghorn, fellow colleague here at Pro Ministries, who spent a lot of time studying this whole area of yoga. You know, it's become real popular here in the West, and a lot of churches are needing to make that decision. Is yoga something we want to practice and endorse here in the church? You know, and so it's a uh, fascinating topic. It's one that we need to get a handle on. So, Michael, it's great to have you on the show today. Well, thank you. It's great to be here. Well, I guess first question is, what exactly is yoga? Well, of course, to many people in the West, uh, yoga is just simply another form of physical exercise, a means of strengthening the body, improving flexibility, uh, a means in some people's minds of healing and preventing a variety of physical ailments. But if we look to the East, if we looked at how yoga is understood in India, say, where it probably arose, uh, we get a much different picture of yoga. Uh, for instance, uh, Swami Yogananda made this comment, Yoga is a method for restraining the natural turbulence of thoughts, which otherwise impartially prevents all men of all lands from glimpsing their true nature of spirit. And if we ask what the term yoga actually means, it literally means union. And the goal of yoga is for the individual self or the individual soul, sometimes referred to as the Atman, to attain union with the supreme soul or the supreme self, which in Hinduism is called Brahman, which is essentially another term for God. God in Hinduism is understood much differently than it is in biblical Christianity, of course. But that's the idea. That's the goal of yoga is union, to achieve union with this impersonal universal consciousness called Brahman. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, our, their understanding of Brahman is an impersonal, uh, ever-present, but an impersonal force or energy. Yeah, there's different conceptions of Brahman in Hinduism. You do have some, like a lower conception, Saguna Brahman, which is considered to be Brahman with attributes, but the highest conception of Brahman in the philosophical thinking of the Hindu schools is Brahman without attributes, Nirguna Brahman. What is the uh, brief history of yoga? Well, we can probably trace yoga all the way back at least to the Upanishads, which is a form of philosophical speculation, wisdom literature in the Indian tradition. There are different dates that are often given for the Upanishads, but if we were to give an inclusive date, we could probably say anywhere from around 1000 BC to 300 BC was the time period in which these Upanishads were being written down. And you find the idea of yoga expressed in the Upanishads. For instance, you find the idea of finding a quiet, solitary place in the Svetasvatara Upanishad and in sit sitting in a seated uh, meditation, keeping erect, and uh, uh, focusing on the breath and these kinds of things. But, uh, for instance, in the Svetasvatara Upanishad, we find statements like this. Um, Be devoted to the eternal Brahman. Unite the light within you, that is the Atman, with the light of Brahman. Thus will the source of ignorance be destroyed, and you will rise above karma. So there you see the idea of union, the idea of yoga or union as the individual self being united with the supreme self, uh, who is Brahman. Um, if we continue to trace it forward even further, we find evidence for yoga also in the Bhagavad Gita, uh, which was probably written sometime in the 4th or 5th century BC, around in that period. 
And uh, for instance, in chapter six, there's a great deal of discussion of yoga. Uh, you have the, uh, we have Krishna, who's one of the characters in the story, who's the Lord, who is the charioteer of Arjuna and is basically discoursing to him on yoga. And he exhorts Arjuna in this way. In chapter six, verse 27, thus supreme joy comes to the yogi whose heart is still, whose passions are peace, who is pure from sin, who is one with Brahman, with God. And so there we clearly see again the idea of yoga being union with God. But finally, a, a significant development occurred in yoga in around 150 AD with a work called the Yoga Sutras in which uh, yoga was actually put into a systematic form, um, has eight different stages, eight limbs as they're called. And these eight limbs begin with uh, yama and niyama, which are essentially uh, foundational or fundamental the fundamental starting place for the yogic disciplines. And these would include things like self-control, uh, moral purity, religious devotion, devotion to the gods. Um, and then only from there do you progress on to the yogic postures, the asanas, and the breath control or breathing exercises, what's called pranayama. And from there it develops into concentration, meditation, and the ultimate goal is samadhi, which is absorption in the Godhead. When you, when you realize, you, you have an experiential realization of oneness with Brahman, that thou art that. The individual soul of the yogi is actually none other than the supreme soul, all that exists, Brahman. Yeah, so we see that yoga is deeply enmeshed in Eastern mysticism and uh, Eastern philosophy. Uh, what are some ways in which uh, the basic philosophy behind yoga conflicts with biblical Christianity? Well, that's a great question. There are actually uh, quite a number of ways in which yogic philosophy and biblical Christianity are different. Um, for instance, they have different conceptions of God. They have different conceptions of human nature. They have different conceptions of what is man's fundamental problem and how are we going to solve it. And they have different conceptions of what happens to a person after death. Now, there, there are different schools, um, uh, you know, six main schools of uh, Hindu philosophical systems. Um, but if we, stick with, if we stick with probably the most popular and the, most, um, the one that's been the most influential, what's called Vedanta, their view of God is essentially non-dualistic. Uh, that is that there is no ultimate distinction between any of the multiplicity of things that we observe around us, that, that all the multiplicity, all the distinctions that we observe are actually maya. It's a false appearance. It's an illusion. It's ignorance of the truth that everything that exists is essentially Brahman. And that, of course, is this impersonal uh, substance. Uh, Brahman is considered to be devoid of all qualities, of all attributes, um, he is the uh, – it is the efficient and material cause of all that exists, that out of which everything comes and that into which everything will be absorbed. So the conception of God in Vedanta, in this non-dualistic uh, system – and most yogis, even those who practice in the West, are non-dualists – the conception of God as impersonal is radically different from that in biblical Christianity because in biblical Christianity, of course, God is personal. In yogic philosophy, there is no ultimate distinction between God and the world. Uh, they're ultimately the same. All that exists is comprised of the substance of Brahman. Whereas in biblical Christianity, in Genesis 1, we see God speaking creation into existence, let there be light. God speaks creation into existence, and creation is something that is other than God. It is distinct from the being of God. 
uh, there is a distinction in biblical Christianity between the creation and the creator. They're not made of the same substance. They're not the same being. But in yogic philosophy, that distinction is lost. So they have a different conception of God. Um, secondly, their conception of human nature is quite different. Uh, for instance, if everything that exists is comprised of the substance of Brahman, um, then the yogi in, in mankind himself is also comprised of the substance of Brahman. Um, the fact that we don't realize this is part of our problem. It's we're mired in ignorance and we need to be enlightened. We, and that was, that's the goal of yoga is to have this experiential realization that all is one and that the individual soul, the Atman, is indistinguishable from, is the same ultimately as Brahman. But so a very different idea of human nature, because in the Bible, while man is created in the image of God, he's created in the image and likeness of God. He's, he's like God and created in his image and likeness, but man is not God. So there again, there's an important distinction. Um, if we think of what is man's primary problem in the yogic worldview, in yogic philosophy, according to Vedanta, the primary problem that man has is ignorance. He is ignorant of the fact that that his Atman, the individual self, really is one with God, really is the same as the supreme self. And this ignorance, the, the way that that is intended to be, the way that the yogi is intended to be released from that is through practicing yoga, um, through the different yoga practices, uh, beginning with, uh, like I said, the foundational elements, yama and niyama, um, and progressing on through the postures and the breathing exercises and concentration and meditation, the yogi ultimately hopes to achieve what's called samadhi, which is absorption into the Godhead, where the yogi realizes that he is Brahman, that there is no ultimate distinction. Um, in Christianity, the, the situation is very different. Man's primary problem isn't ignorance. I mean, that's maybe part of the problem, but man's primary problem in biblical Christianity is sin. And the solution, of course, is Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Um, similarly, if we, if we follow this thought a little bit further, in yoga, the yogi is striving with all of his might to realize samadhi. He's, he's working very, very diligently to attain God-realization where he realizes that he is Brahman, that there is no ultimate distinction. Um, in Christianity, of course, we don't work for our salvation. Uh, Jesus Christ has paid the penalty for our sins when he died on the cross for our sins and was raised for our justification. And now God calls men to enter into relationship with himself freely. It's, uh, we, we're able to receive salvation freely as a gift of God's grace. It's not something that we have to earn or merit. Um, and then finally, if we think about what happens to a person after death, in the yogic view, you go through numerous lifetimes uh, before you finally achieve God-realization and once you've achieved that, then you no longer are subject to rebirth. You no longer are on the wheel of samsara of birth, death, and rebirth, and having to live lives that are filled with pain and suffering and all of that. Um, but you, you go through many reincarnations, so you're reincarnated repeatedly until you finally do achieve God-realization. And after that, then a God-realized person, once they die, then they're absorbed back into the being of Brahman and they're not reborn. 
But in Christianity, of course, Hebrews 9.27 tells us that it's appointed for man once to die, and after this comes judgment. And so in Christianity, we see we only have one life. We, we aren't, aren't repeatedly reincarnated. We have one life, and afterwards we stand before God in judgment, and we will be judged according to the basis of, according to our relationship with Jesus Christ. Um, if we were rightly related to him, then we enter into eternal fellowship with God in heaven, and if not, then we're eternally separated from God in hell. You know, Michael, an illustration I was told by a practicing Hindu is that the journey of the individual uh, is like a drop of water that lands in the mountains and must somehow find its way back to absorption and union with the ocean, which represents Brahma. So we're each drops of water, in essence, we're of the same essence as the ocean or Brahma, and we are all on some kind of spiritual journey to union, absorption with the divine. Yeah, you're exactly right. In fact, the way that yogic philosophy conceives of the world is that all of reality is comprised of the substance of Brahman, that everything came out of Brahman. He's the material and efficient cause of the world, the universe, and that all things will eventually be absorbed into the being of Brahman. And so, yeah, that's a good illustration. It's We're like individual drops of water composed of the very same substance as the ocean from which we came, and we're all working to find our way back into the ocean. And what's interesting about the illustration is that, of course, when an individual drop of water reunites with the totality, the whole ocean, it loses its individuality. So while there's a sense in which, in the yogic conception, a person, the the individual Atman, which is one with Brahman, the individual soul, never dies, there's also a sense in which personal existence doesn't continue because ultimately Brahman is impersonal. So there is no personal conscious existence for all eternity. Now, I guess the question a lot of people are asking out there, especially Christians, is can yoga philosophy and yoga practice be separated? Can we just do the exercise uh, without the philosophy? A lot of churches have yoga classes, mm -hmm. uh, or they do some yoga exercises across the nation? Well, that's a great question. And, uh, and actually, if you read works by both swamis and yogis, as well as by Christians who are writing on yoga, even including some Christians who have been converted to Christianity out of a yogic worldview and out of yoga practice, you find a lot of uh, different views on that. There are many people who think that there is no way to ultimately make a clear, careful distinction between yoga philosophy and yoga practice. And really, this, this kind of ties in with the yogic worldview in a sense. If everything that exists is ultimately comprised of the substance of Brahman, which is essentially the doctrine of pantheism. Pantheism comes from two Greek words, pan, which means all or every, and theos, which means God. So it essentially teaches that everything is God, which is what this view of Vedanta essentially teaches, that everything is God, everything is Brahman. If that's the case, then our body is just really a crude layer of mind in a sense. Um, so by definition, by getting into the postures, by practicing breath control and the breathing exercises, there's even some yogis who would point out that according to this philosophy, by manipulating the body in these various postures and with the breath, breathing techniques and so forth, you are by definition manipulating the mind towards these meditative states of consciousness in the attempt to attain God-realization, to realize that you are 
Brahman, that there is no ultimate distinction. So even some yogis would say that there's no real way to separate philosophy from practice. But I do think as a Christian, since I don't buy into the pantheistic worldview myself, since I don't believe that everything is comprised of the substance of Brahman, um, I do believe that it, at the introductory levels with the postures that there probably can be a distinction that is safe to make between philosophy and practice. As a Christian, I don't buy into the pantheistic worldview that everything is God, and so I see God as being the creator of our bodies, that he designed our bodies in such a way to where they benefit from exercise and these kinds of things. If you look through an introductory text on Hatha yoga, which is often considered to be just purely physical yoga, you'll, you'll find a number of postures and stretching exercises and so forth, which you're, if you're engaged in an, a regular stretching program, you'd probably be surprised to find you're already doing some of these exercises. You're already, you're already assuming some of these asanas or postures. So if you were to practice at a beginning level some of these basic yoga postures, say, in a context that was completely void of yogic philosophy and you weren't buying into the yogic worldview of pantheism and all the rest, then I think that a distinction can be made. The problem, I think, comes with as you progress in yoga, as you move to the more advanced stages of yoga. And here's why. As you move to the more advanced stages, that shows that you're taking this discipline more and more seriously. And the more seriously you take it, probably the more likely you are to begin to buy into the philosophy behind it. And of course, as we've already seen, since the philosophy of yoga and the theology of biblical Christianity are irreconcilable, I mean, they have different views of God, different views of man, different views of man's fundamental problem and how it's solved, different views of what happens to a person after death. Since these are just completely different worldviews, to the extent that a Christian begins to buy into the yogic worldview, to that extent he's abandoning his faith. Um, he's adopting a worldview that is completely contrary to biblical Christianity. Is it so, not a good idea then for churches to have yoga classes? I, I know that's a tough call because there are the the strictly physical benefits and exercises, and then there's the philosophy that goes with it, and you're talking about making that distinction. Yeah, and, and in a church, provided that it's a church that genuinely does teach biblical Christianity, that they're preaching the Word of God and so forth, and they're not trying to go into more advanced stages of yoga, that it's completely free from the philosophy of yoga, and nobody's trying to teach that or... Um, you know, bring that to bear on the sessions, then probably as long as it stays at an introductory level, there's probably no harm in that. It probably is simply just, you know, to be regarded simply as a form of exercise. Um, But you do have to be careful. I think it's important for Christians to be informed that that yoga, uh, historically, as it's been understood, isn't just an exercise program. Uh, that asanas, the postures and the breathing techniques, pranayama, are really just steps three and four, limbs three and four of this eight-limb path that's designed to lead you to this experiential realization that all is one and that I am God, that I am Brahman. Mm. Um, So you really do, I I think that Christians really do need to be careful. Um, Another thing to keep in mind is that the postures and the breathing exercises for anybody that's practiced them um, and and seriously practiced them can testify to the fact that they, they really do help to move you into a meditative state of consciousness, producing deep relaxation. Uh, I read a psychologist out at UCLA, I believe, uh, who even said that pranayama, the manual manipulation of the nasal 
uh, passage during um, yogic breathing exercises is one of the best documented ways of altering one's state of consciousness. So these exercises and the breathing techniques really do work to produce a meditative state, and that's why they've been incorporated as part of this eight-limb uh, uh, stage, so to speak, of, of leading one from ignorance to enlightenment, leading one from ignorance of his true self to enlightenment where he realizes that he is God, essentially. And biblical Christianity would hold that we don't need to get into, in fact, we ought to avoid an altered state of consciousness. I think Let that our mind be filled rather than be empty. Right. Yeah, in biblical prayer and meditation, you're filling your mind with the Word of God Whereas in Eastern meditation, as Michael is talking about here, you're emptying your mind of all of the conscious self, entering into a new state of consciousness and union with the divine. Yeah, it's it's like, you know, technically we could recognize different types of altered states of consciousness. Dreaming, in a sense, would be a, a type of altered state of consciousness. Um, if you had to take, you know, some drugs for some, you know, prescription drugs for some sort of... Uh, uh, physical ailment that you had, it might produce a slight altered state of consciousness. But, yeah, as far as seeking experiences of attaining altered states of consciousness, especially when it's combined with a non-Christian worldview, really, really makes me wary. Because um, while I want to be careful here, it, it, it does at least raise the potential, and I want to emphasize the word potential, it does at least raise the potential for for being increasingly vulnerable to demonic deception, I think. Knowing what we do about the spiritual realm, from Ephesians 6 and so forth, uh, I think that's a good point. Yeah. Uh, you want to, it doesn't mean automatically that you're going to get demonic uh, influence. Yeah, but, exactly. But reason uh, we should be cautious, and the reason the Bible cautions, cautions us is because you have the potential of doing so. I think so, yes. You're in an altered state of consciousness. Mm-hmm. You are opening yourself, or you are vulnerable, in a sense, to, to that, especially if you've been adding some of the uh, other occultic aspects to that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Especially the more that view. philosophy is embraced, I think you make yourself more and more vulnerable to demonic deception, and that's that's something that I would really want to discourage Christians from getting involved with, of course. Yeah, you'll be surprised how many churches I speak at that are practicing actually Eastern meditation techniques, and, and they don't really know it. it. It's amazing. Yeah, it really is amazing how much this uh, these philosophical ideas have crept into the church and begun to influence you know church programs and yeah. so forth. You know, there are a lot of people that claim that yoga has helped them uh, as far as their health, mental, uh, even cured some cases of asthma and things. But just because it may be beneficial in some physical sense doesn't necessarily mean it's it's of God. Yeah, you're exactly right. And and there would be other, you know, alternatives to yoga. Uh, there might not be anything that's precisely like that, but you could still get involved with a, a relatively comprehensive stretching program of some kind that didn't include any aspects of yogic philosophy and and wasn't uh, aimed at accomplishing the same goals that yoga is. Or, you know, getting involved with something like, oh, I don't know, water ballet or water aerobics or whatever, something that's going to be easy on the body and yet isn't going to be potentially harmful to the soul and can accomplish some of the same physical benefits. It, it's important to understand, though, and I, I don't want to... Uh, I don't want to be, uh, 
using scare tactics here or anything, but but it is interesting when you read authoritative yoga literature by various yogis and swamis, they will caution about incorrect yoga practices and how you know practicing the postures or especially the breathing techniques incorrectly can lead to uh, mild to severe forms of neuroses. Uh, various anxiety disorders, and even psychoses, insanity, they also have the potential to damage one's health and one's sanity. We want to thank you so much for listening to Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuckerin on this timely topic and remind you that you can get this entire series at our website, evidenceandanswers.org. That's evidenceandanswers.org. You'll find some of the best resources on presenting and defending your faith in Christ to an increasingly skeptical world at evidenceandanswers.org. World religions, atheism, the cults, the occult, apologetics, scientific and philosophical arguments for the existence of God, creation and evolution, the reliability of the Bible, archaeology and history, and the end times, to name but just a few. There's a new feature on our website called iShows, where you can download each individual show for just 250 On our website, evidenceandanswers.org, just like you download a song on iTunes, these are iShows that you can download each individual show you want, and we got some of the top scholars on there. Evidence and Answers is supported by you, the listener, who appreciates a program that gives good answers to good questions. Our calling is to do what the Apostle Paul did on Mars Hill in Athens. He presented and defended the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we'll help you do the same by the grace of God. Just go to evidenceandanswers.org and any gift or purchase of resources will be a tremendous encouragement to us. And remember that this entire series is available at evidenceandanswers.org. This has been Kevin Harris. Thank you so much for listening to Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucharin. Evidenceandanswers.org. Evidence and Answers.